everybody. What is going on? You know what time it is. You're listening to Join the Journey podcast with your host, Emma Daughter. Thanks for joining. Today's passage gives us a lot to talk about. Last days, people to avoid weak women. Is that offensive? We've got a lot to cover. So let's start with verse one because that sets the scene. Paul writes, in the last days. What are the last days or when are the last days? Honestly, commentators have different approaches. Some believe it's the days that immediately precede the days leading up to Jesus's return or said differently, the days leading up to the rapture. But is it the last seven days before he comes back or seven years or many years leading up to it? Scholars, they, they have different views and each of us needs to wrestle with this ourselves. But here's the most leading viewpoint of the last days. Think about it like grade school math, maybe when you were learning to count or when you were first introduced to negative numbers or the concept of infinity. You've got a horizontal line. It's drawn across a sheet of paper like a number line, but instead it's a timeline with arrows on both ends as time is extending indefinitely as God, he operates outside of time. And at some point near the left side arrow, you make a tick and mark creation on your timeline. And then as you read through the Bible, you add some key moments, maybe the flood, Abraham, David and Goliath, the exile, the Israelites return, and then you bracket 400 years of silence that end with a tick mark marking John the Baptist and a big old tick for the birth of Jesus, the first Christmas. And pretty close to that, you've got another tick for his death on the cross and another for his resurrection and then his ascension. And we could keep going throughout the whole Bible, but eventually— Somewhere on the right side of the line, we're marking Jesus's return. And we don't know where that tick technically belongs, but we know that one day, his second coming, his return, it's something we should look forward to. We're confident he will return in bodily form. So how do we know where the last days fall on this timeline? In Hebrews 1, the author writes, in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, meaning that within the last days, God spoke to people through Jesus and in light of 2 Timothy 3, in the last days, there will be future tense. We're left to conclude that the last days started sometime around Christ's first coming or ascension and will end ultimately when he returns. This viewpoint, it's called the inner advent period, the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And again, Commentators have differing views, but this is the most popular. Timothy, most commentators believe, was, and we are currently, in the last days, and they will only continue to get worse. And as they got worse, Paul told Timothy, people will be marked by a lot of horrible things. That's the list in verses 2 through 5. And Timothy is instructed to avoid such people. Aren't Christians to engage with the lost? Why would Paul instruct Timothy to avoid these people who clearly don't practice what's right? Aren't we to love the sinners? Jesus sat with the tax collectors, didn't he? All throughout the pastoral epistles, Paul instructs the church to separate from false teachers while simultaneously charging his audience to teach the truth, preaching sound doctrine, even to those who disagree. I mean, that's everything we talked about in the last episode on chapter 2. There was a specific way to engage with those who don't know truth, with gentleness. So what's going on here? Avoid such people? How do we reconcile these seemingly contradictory ideas? We have to remember that whenever Paul calls a leader to separate themselves from heretics, he's, he's likely referring to matters of doctrine, 
it isn't necessarily a relational banishment or call to pretend they don't exist and ignore their presence at all costs like a mean older sibling might do. You know, when the younger sibling's talking and the older one ignores them and is like, did you hear something? No, I don't, I don't think I did. It's, it's not ignore their existence. However, it's possible that this instruction is given regarding people who are passionately or fervently resisting the good news. When Jesus says to shake the dust off your sandals and move on, we're not responsible for changing hearts or minds. Be faithful, share truth, love people, do your part, and keep running the race. Don't get stuck talking in circles. Shake off the dust. You've said your part. If they persist in defiance, keep going, go around. Don't get lost in heretical ideas and discussions around things that just aren't true. Trust God. Move on. Avoid such people. Keep going. Don't slow down. Don't get wrapped up in their lies. Moreover, one commentator says, It was not the separation, as in quarantine, but a separateness of spirit, a freedom from contagion or infection. Their aims, ideals, and activities are not to be shared, but as persons, they are to be one. But these people, they, they capture weak women. Verses like this can sometimes contribute to the secular idea that the Bible or Christianity is anti-women. But that isn't the case at all. Most scholars actually agree that here in 2 Timothy 3, Paul isn't speaking of all women in general. He's speaking about a very specific, certain population of women, likely a specific group of women in Ephesus. And these women were marked not by physical weakness or by intellectual weakness, but rather by a moral weakness. And you can clearly see this explanation play out as you keep reading. The weak women, they're loaded down with sin and swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Remember, as the previous commentator I mentioned said, the people who capture weak women, their aims, ideals, and activities are not to be shared. And it's also likely sexual immorality was intertwined in all of this. So why would Paul have mentioned this? I mean, the list he gives at the beginning seems pretty comprehensive. It's almost as if Paul says, hey, in the last days, there will be more and more of all of these sinful things, and they're dangerous. Proceed with extreme caution. You know what these kinds of scenarios look like, Timothy. Think about the promiscuous and vulnerable women who make poor choices in Ephesus. They're probably taken advantage of by the false teachers, and both the vulnerable women and the men to avoid, they neglect the very truths that could set them free from their lifestyle. The women's vulnerability, they were more susceptible to the false teaching as women naturally at that time, they had more of a lower class place in society and were less educated. Think about Janus and Jambres, he continues in his explanation, and I'm taking a shot at pronouncing these names. Let's just roll with it. So while Janus and Jambres aren't named in the Old Testament, many historical sources identify them as the Egyptian magicians in Exodus chapter 7 and chapter 9. So Paul's audience would have been familiar with that story. So what's his point? One communicator said it pretty simply. Both groups resisted truth. Both the men who capture weak women and Janus and Jambres opposed God's best. They opposed truth. And in the end, their sinful ways will be exposed. But as the chapter continues, we see some contrast. Verse 10, Paul says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, and so on. Yes, his life of godliness has come with persecution, but so will be the case for all believers. That's how it should be. 
As the evildoers go from bad to worse, this persecution will only continue. But God has been faithful to preserve Paul, so such a reality would have been really encouraging to Timothy. So Paul urges Timothy, continue in the truth you've been taught. And when thinking about the rest of this chapter, one commentator says, in his personal life, Timothy should continue living as he had rather than turning aside to the example of the evil men Paul just mentioned. Timothy's conduct grew out of what he had learned that gave him personal convictions. For example, Jewish parents, they were expected to teach their children the law from the age of five and on. Timothy's convictions grew stronger because Paul's life had backed up the truth that Timothy had learned from him. Furthermore, they were consistent with the sacred scriptures that he'd known all his life. So the commentator concludes, These inspired writings convey wisdom and lead to a personal salvation from sin because they point to Christ. Thus, they are reliable and powerful. And as I kept studying and reading, I found this next bit particularly insightful and helpful for us today, especially when we look at verse 16. Most of us are likely familiar with it, that all scriptures God breathed. Contextually, scholars are able to conclude that Paul is likely speaking to all of scripture in its entirety. In verse 15, Paul was definitely referring to the Old Testament, the sacred writings. Timothy started studying them as a boy, but all scripture is divinely inspired. Dr. Constable says this about the Word. The Bible, it does not merely contain the Word of God or become the Word of God under certain conditions. It is God's Word. The expression of His person, His heart, His mind, His will. This was the view of the Hebrew Bible that the Jews in the first century commonly held. Scripture means sacred writing and applies to all divinely inspired writings, Old and New Testament. The Greeks used the word graphe, translated scripture, to refer to any piece of writing but the New Testament writers used it only of Holy Scripture. When Paul made this statement, the books of our Old Testament were the inspired writings he had in view primarily. However, even in Paul's day, Christians recognized some New Testament books as inspired. See 2 Peter 3.16. We don't have time to go there, but you can check it out on your own. And at the end of the day, Scripture is incredibly useful, but it's a means to an end, not an end in and of itself. Our goal when studying the Bible, be it our study through Join the Journey or something else, is to fall more in love with the God of the Bible as we study His Word. So what does your Bible study look like today? Are you regularly in the Word? Do you pick and choose your favorite parts? Or do you get swept away in the head knowledge over the heart impact? All of us have our own weak points we could grow in. Maybe it's discipline or heart posture. At the end of the day, though, we need each other. Weaknesses and all, as we can complement each other's strengths such that we might help each other through the teaching or explaining of the word or accountability to get in it regularly, we need each other. And so I'm glad we're all on this journey together. Hey, we want to thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed the episode. Did you know that you can help support Join the Journey by rating and reviewing this podcast? And if you're willing, we'd love it if you subscribe, because the more you download, the easier it will be for new friends to find the podcast.